0: Good morning. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs, chapter 30, if you're with the threes and fours class, you are dismissed to your class. Thank you for worshiping with us. And if you need a copy of God's word, uh, just slip up your hand and one of our church members will be bringing extras from the back. Proverbs chapter 30 is where we are this morning. Proverbs chapter 30, we are concluding uh, Proverbs chapter 30, the wisdom of a man named Agur. Now we've been journeying through Proverbs uh, since January, and uh, the last three weeks have had us in this very unique section in Proverbs written by a man named Agur, and this is what we've seen Thus far, we have heard Agor's confession of weakness. He's confessed to God that he is weary. He's confessed to God that he is not as wise as he should be. By now, he follows that up with words of adoration. He praises his God for being the one who can do only the things that God can do. Then he follows that adoration up with a petition. He, he has particular requests from God. He he desires God to work in his life. And now we move into the wise words of Agor, a, a series of proverbs, these individual or collections of sayings that are meant to point us to the wisdom of God. And let me warn you on the front end, some of them are weird. They feel a bit random He uses poetic tools, he uses analogies that we're unfamiliar with. If you were to practice the, God, show me what you want me to do with my life, and you open your Bible and you point to a random verse, you would be very confused if you landed on a particular verse from Agor. But after reading this through many times, I do think that there is a thematic thread that follows through the words of wisdom from agor that is very important for everyone in the room. So let's read the rest of the chapter, starting in verse 10. We're going to read all the way through verse 33, and you'll uh, see what I'm talking about. Verse 10, do not slander a servant to his master, lest he curse you and you be held guilty. There are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. There are those how lofty are their eyes, how high their eyelids lift. There are those whose teeth are swords, whose Fangs are knives to devour the poor from off the earth, the needy from among the mankind. The leech has two daughters, give and give. Three things are never satisfied. Four never say enough. Sheol, the barren womb, the land never satisfied with water, and the fire that never says enough. The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. This is a nice verse to quote over lunch, fathers, if you are not appreciated, right? Remember what the Bible says? Verse 18, three, things are too wonderful for me. Four, I do not understand the way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, the way of a man with a virgin. This is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done no wrong. Under three things, the earth trembles. Under four, it cannot bear up. A slave when he becomes a king, a fool when he's filled with food, an unloved woman when she gets a husband, and a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. Four things on earth are small, but they are exceedingly small wise. The ants are people not strong, yet they provide their food in the summer. The rock badgers are a people not mighty, yet they make their homes in cliffs. The locusts have no king, yet all of them march in rank. The lizard you can take in your hands, yet it is in king's palaces." Three things are stately in their tread, four are stately in their stride. The lion, which is mightiest among beasts and doesn't turn back before any, the strutting rooster, the he-goat, the king whose army is with him. If you've been foolish, exalting yourself, or if you've been devising evil, put your hand on your mouth. For pressing milk produces curds, pressing the nose produces blood, pressing anger produces strife. Let's pray. <laughs> Lord, we thank you for your word, every single word of it, even the strange passages of scripture that calls us to think deeply and to pray hard for you to uh, lead us into the meaning of the text and what it meant for Agor and what it means for us today, God, and I pray that uh, as your word promises that you'll do that as we think deeply about these things this morning that your spirit would give us understanding and i pray god that we would not just throw away this section of inspired text because of how strange it is to 21st century uh americans but father we pray that lord that you would give us eyes to see true things in your word wonderful things beautiful things convicting things god and that you would work a miracle in this room a miracle in which God speaks through a man to your people. and Father, we pray for conviction of sin, for encouragement of soul, and ultimately we pray that we'd be satisfied in you this morning with deeper worship of the one who brings a contentment that we find in no other place in the world. Father, we pray all these things by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you remember last week, Agor lifts this three-verse prayer up to the Lord, and we talked about how this prayer was not random, that he chose this prayer particularly to be the model prayer of the wise person. He picked these things to pray for, and he emphasized the intensity of that prayer by saying, two things I ask of you, verse 7, deny them not before I die. This is what I need from the Lord. This is what I need him to do In me and through me. And this is what he prays. God, remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food that's needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who's the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Last week we looked at this prayer, this model prayer, and we noted that Agor's primary concern in all things was the name of his God being rightly represented in his world he didn't want to be so full he didn't want to be so rich he literally prays god don't make me so wealthy that i forget about you that i deny you don't make me so poor that i become angry or profane the name of his god and i think that what he does here in this prayer is that he introduces to us the thematic thread that then holds together all the random stuff, the seemingly random stuff that is to follow. And that thread is the thread of contentment versus discontentment. Contentment versus discontentment. Or you could use the synonym of discontentment that is covetousness. The word covet, covetous means to have or to show a great desire. To possess something belonging to someone else or to be into another position in life that you are not presently in covetousness is it's the kind of sadness or grief or depression or anger or anxiety over discontentment in the life that God has granted you to live right now. Covetousness is the illusion that if you just had what you wanted most, all of your problems would then go away. Discontentment is the ongoing covetousness that functions like a pestering desire for something else that God won't let you have. It is a pestering desire that won't let you enjoy the God before you. And what he's already granted you by his grace. Agor's theme of discontentment that I think we see running through this passage is actually wise commentary on the 10th commandment that he would have known very well. I mean, this is one of the 10 commandments, the final commandment in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your Neighbors, Agor's wisdom, I think, is speaking to the seriousness of not being content in the place that God has placed you, All right, So, Agor prays for God not to make him rich, not to make him, pray, not to make him poor. Essentially, he's praying for godly contentment, and the wisdom words that follow show what happens when that prayer is not answered, when discontentment drives you, So here's the first truth to write down. Truth number one, and I hope you see this thread. Truth number one, discontentment drives us to sin against others. Discontentment drives us to sin against others. So you see this playing out beginning in verse 10. Verse 10, do not slander a servant to his master, lest he curse you and you be held Guilty. So the first warning is against slandering. It describes a setting where a servant or a slave slanders another to their master. And the only thing that you can guess in relation to what he's been praying for is that the reason the slandering is happening is in order to gain standing with the master, right? So, out of desire for higher standing, for more blessing, the servant slanders a fellow servant. And in doing so, only secures conflict. Now, we know this sin pretty well, the desire to look better than we really are by slandering someone else. Every one of us has this desire to look good in front of others, and one of the ways we can do that is not by looking good ourselves, but by virtue of comparison, making other people look bad. Our insidious desire to climb the social ladder drives us to step on anyone along the way whether that be a fellow servant or a family member. Verse 11, there are those who curse their fathers and don't bless their mothers. There's those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth, so, so they've got a good view of themselves. There are those who are, how lofty are their eyes, how high are their eyelids lift. There are those whose teeth are swords, whose fangs are knives, to devour the poor from off the earth, the needy from among a mankind. So there's a repeated phrase that ties all that little section together. There are those, there are those, there are those. Within that phrase is a word in Hebrew which uh, refers to generation. Uh, Most of the commentaries I read uh, talked about these phrases strung together, carrying this nuance that he's talking about that generation, those younger people. Agor's complaining about the millennials, okay? (laughs) He's complaining about the Gen Zers. He's complaining about whatever the generation was before him. You can imagine Agor speaking and saying, in that generation with their eyelids so lifted up high above the heads of the people around him, Their eyelids are lifted up, they're lifted high above the people that that are around them in such a way, their goal in life, their purpose in life, their higher social standing, a certain type of life, a certain career, a certain financial threshold, their eyes are lifted up so much so that they curse and take advantage of people along the way, including their own parents, including the vulnerable that are among them. There's a, there's there's no care in those people that he's referring to uh, for other people, only for self. A, a discontentment in life leads this generation to see people as simply pawns in a scheme to get where they want to go. Everyone in that generation, or those people, everyone is either a barrier to self-achievement or a tool to use for self-achievement achievement. You're either an ally to be utilized for self-realization or an enemy to be destroyed. Uh, this This is the kind of thing that discontentment can drive you to do. It can drive you to disregard people in your life. Or it can cause you to disregard God's good gifts in your life. As we look through the text, you can see that their eyes are lifted up so much so that they hurt the people that are closest to them. Later in the text, Agor is amazed uh, not only how uh, people are taking for granted the people in their life, but he's amazed that people are taking for granted the wonderful gifts that God has given them in their life. You jump down to verse 18, he speaks to this reality specifically. In verse 18 he says three things are too wonderful for me these there's things that are just so amazing part of God's creation that I can't really explain why they are the way that they are, right? For I I don't even understand these things. Verse 19, the way of an eagle in the sky. Like, I don't get how that eagle can stay uh, above the clouds like this. The way of a serpent on a rock. He doesn't have legs. How's he moving, right? I mean, there's, there's something incredible about the creation here. The way of a ship on the high seas and then the way of a man with a virgin. He speaks of the love relationship of a man and a woman on their wedding night. And he says, this, is, this, this started in the heart of God the same way that the eagle soaring through the sky started in the heart of God. What an amazing gift. What a beautiful gift. What a wonderful gift. Too wonderful for me to understand. Verse 20, this is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done no wrong. You see, you see what he's saying has happened, that, that, that there has been a taking for granted a good gift. And made it something that it was not. The adulteress turns sex into a gross satisfying of the appetite with no regard for God or his word. Something that can be done, wiped away, and moved on to the next thing. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done no wrong. And what's the motivator for that except a discontentment of the soul, thinking that there is something that can satisfy the longing? Truth number one, discontentment drives us to sin against others. Not only does it drive us to sin against others like many sins do, it simultaneously blinds us to its seriousness. Jump back to verse 12, take note of what Agor says. He says, there are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. Discontentment is blinding. There's something about it which keeps you from seeing yourself as you really are and what God has gifted you with as what it really is. And this is a reoccurring theme in Proverbs. Foolishness, the worst kinds of foolishness, are always the kinds of foolishness that lack self-awareness that don't really see what the real problem is. I mean, we could just track through over and over again, right? Proverbs 12, 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Uh, Proverbs 14, 12. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in its end is the way to death. Chapter 26, 12. Do you see a man who's wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. Agor says that there is a way... For you to be very clean in your own assessment of yourself, but not washed from the filth. And if we follow what I think is the theme of this text, I think that we can deduce that people that struggle with covetousness or discontentment in life, they have rose-colored glasses about what they deserve from God. At least one reason for discontentment is a very high esteem of self and what role God and others should play in providing us with what we want. Discontentment is always sort of the love child of pride and ingratitude. It begins with an underappreciation of the grace of God already poured out on you. Discontentment and covetousness for something God is not giving has this way of blinding you. It makes you the innocent victim in all situations and relationships. You are being deprived of something you think you deserve. It makes you always offended, but never the offender. It makes you always clean in your own eyes, but never washed by the grace you don't think you need. Rather, you walk with a chip on your shoulder about the things God hasn't given you yet. Covetousness blinds us of what we really need from the Lord with this sort of overpowering frustration and longing for what we think we want. There's a further problem with this, though. What we think we want will not actually fix what is broken inside of us. So, so, all of our discontentment and what we think will fix the heart struggle that we dwell in will not actually fix it. And Agor goes on to recognize this reality in several ways over and over again. Look at verse 15. Rule. Nice language here. The leech has two daughters, give and give. Three things are never satisfied. Four, never say enough. Sheol, the barren woman, the land never satisfied with water, and the fire that never says enough. Truth number three. Truth number three. Discontentment can't be satisfied. Discontentment can't be satisfied. The leech sucks the life out of things. That's what it does. Out of one opening, it attaches itself to the victim. Out of another opening, it sucks the lifeblood out of its host. This is what the discontent person does. They are like a parasite, which takes and takes and takes and takes and never produces. They never give to the relationships they're in because that would require them to not have their eyes lifted up at what they want, but to bring it down to where they really are. Discontentment speaks a louder word, and so we relate to others so as long as they can benefit us. The problem is... We're never satisfied. And this is the sin within us. It, it turns us into parasites, suckers of life rather than producers of life. And then what Igor does, he just keeps providing analogies that kind of just paint the same picture in maybe less gross ways. They, they warn us that in reality, our discontentment will not be satisfied by the fulfillment of our desires. Our covetousness is like Sheol, the grave, death itself. Ever since sin came into the world, death has never been satisfied. Uh, satisfied of taking from the world people always die she all keeps taking and taking do you get the analogy there we all will continue longing for things and he picks he picks here one of the deepest longings that many of this room have felt the longing of a barren woman who wants children He says it's a very natural phenomenon that we see throughout all of the scriptures, this longing for children. And he's using this analogy to speak of all of humanity have a a deep longing for something that they don't have. The the desert land, which simply consumes the water out of sight. If you go out into the desert and you pour out a gallon of water, that land will drink it up and it's gone. You didn't make yourself a nice little pool to swim in. It just disappears before you. Or like the fire which the more you feed it, it just grows and needs to be fed some more. Most often, discontentment in our lives cannot actually be fixed by the thing we think we want because very soon after, we will be discontent once again. Any person in the room, if you're a car guy or a truck guy, Uh, uh, Father's Day, I'll use a car guy uh, analogy if that's you. You know what it's like to buy the thing that you thought about for months and then within two months to be tired of that thing and to be thinking about the next thing that you need to buy, right? Agor makes this point that would not be satisfied, but then he makes it again by listing another scenario where individuals have a social status change, Where individuals actually change their position in life, but not a heart change. Look at verse 21. Under three things, the earth trembles, under four, it cannot bear up a slave when he becomes a king, a fool when he's filled with food, an unloved woman when she gets a husband. And a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. So the whole societal system, the world, trembles when people get what they want because they are still the same fools that they were before they had it. He shows that when people get to the position they want... Assuming they coveted it after it in sinful ways, it often leads to disaster because although the life position may have changed, the discontent person is still the same. (laughs) This happens in the ministry world all the time, right? I mean, pastors get discontent with their church size and ministry platform. They're ungrateful. They're unsatisfied with the Lord. They're not prayerful. They move to another church that's bigger with a bigger budget with more people, and all they realize is all they got is more problems, And they're still the same prayerless pastor that they were at the smaller church down the street. Perhaps the most relatable situation for many of our young people in the room is relationship status, right? I mean, this is one of the first and biggest tests of the faith for many of us. Can we be happy in the Lord through the difficulty, perhaps long, perhaps lifelong journey of singleness? Can you be happy in the Lord Because just as difficult as it is to be happy in the Lord through singleness, it will be difficult to be happy in the Lord through the struggles of marriage and parenthood. (laughs) Igor knows there's sin crouching at the door for the very rich person and sin crouching at the door for the very poor person. For the servant, even when he becomes a king, sin crouches at the door. Miracle grace of contentment. In the name of the Lord is key. Learning to steward well the ministry, the giftings, the life position that the Lord has given us is the key. This is exactly what Agor goes on to emphasize, and this is truth number four. Truth number four, discontentment makes you miss God-given opportunity discontentment makes you miss god-given opportunity now this is where it gets a little strange but I, i i hope that you can follow along the point i think he's trying to make so look at verse 24 he says four things on earth are small but they are exceedingly wise The ants are a people not strong, yet they provide their food in the summer. The rock badgers are a people not mighty, yet they make their home in the cliffs. The locusts have no king, yet all of them march in rank. The lizard you can take in your hands, yet it is in king's palaces. Now, with each example, the animal example that he gives here is unimpressive, small, very vulnerable, right? So every kind of animal example here is unimpressive, very small. You can smush an ant under your foot, right? These are are not... Predator-like animals, they are born into a low, undesirable state. The ant is tiny and lacks strength. The badger does, is not mighty, nor is it large in number. The locusts have no leader. The lizard is so small, you can take it in your hands. No one would want to live life in these positions assigned by God. They're all weak in their own right. But what he shows... Is that each one utilizes the wisdom, wisdom which flows from God, to not only survive, but to thrive in God's world. The ants work together because they're so massive number. They work together and are supplied with food. The badger dwells out of reach from the enemy because it's able to dig homes into the cliff. The locust may not have a leader, but they move in unison together in large, powerful swarms. The lizard may be tiny, but it can fit himself through the cracks up the walls of the most luxurious palace in each case these examples from god's creation use what god has given them to survive and thrive in god's world in unique unique ways the implication is that you should too that you should embrace your weaknesses your limitations your smallness, your position in life as it stands right now, and in your contentment with what God has given you, you should steward it to walk in the wisdom of God. You might feel very small, very incapacitated, very weak, but perhaps God made you with your weaknesses and with your frailty for such a time as this to dwell in king's palaces through your smallness for the glory of God. God, God in, intends to use you where you are and what He's given you in His world. At the same time, God may have given you particular strengths in the same way that you steward those weaknesses for His glory, you steward those strengths for His glory. Agor gives up us a follow-up list with some more examples from the animal kingdom, man. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 29. This is, what he, this is what he gives us. Three things are stately in their tread. Four are stately in their stride. These animals carry themselves very differently than the previous animals. The lion, which is mightiest among beasts, does not turn back from before, in, before any. Verse 31, the strutting rooster, the he-goat, and the king whose army is with him. Now, does it doesn't appear that he's... he's pre- He's depicting these animals in a, in a bad light. In fact, what he's highlighting is the way in which they carry themselves. The lion's described as mighty. He presents it a positive light. He doesn't turn back from the enemy. And then the last uh, bit there is, it, and a king does this too, right? So these animals are made very different than the liz- lizard or the badger, uh, just as someone who is born into the royal family, has a very different responsibility in their life than the servant. The king has to be more like a lion. He he can't turn back from the battle. Whether he wants to or not, he needs to lead the army. (laughs) He has to step into this, this. So just as a servant should not covet the position of a king, a king should not covet the position of a servant. He has to fulfill the duty the Lord has assigned him. And in all of this, each example reveals God's creature doing exactly what God designed him to do and graced him to do. The last few verses bring a final overarching clarity and and sort of a summary description of why discontentment is a problem. Lastly, let's turn to, look at verse 32. If you've been foolish exalting yourself or if you've been devising evil so there's sort of two category devising being scheming so if you've been foolish putting yourself up in a high place that you don't need to be or devising a scheme an evil scheme to get to a place that is not rightfully yours he says put your hand on your mouth Verse 33 uses more analogies for why this, is, this will turn out bad for you. Pressing milk produces curds. Pressing the nose produces blood. Pressing anger produces strife. Each of these things basically say there's a one in one relation. If you do this, the bad result happens. If you do this, the bad result happens. If you do this, the bad result happens. This is the final truth for us this morning. Discontentment is a form of self-exaltation that self-destructs. This contentment is a form of self-exaltation that ultimately self-destructs. Agor's final words are a call to repentance or else. The foolishness of exalting self will lead to ultimately a destroying of self. Now, self-exaltation is the worst part about discontentment because true wisdom we have learned in the book of Proverbs is to rightly fear God, right? It is to relate to God as he really is, deserving king of all the universe. Foolishness decentralizes the fear of God, and then it elevates the sense of self. We are discontent when we lift ourselves up to a place of deserving and worthy of worship. The more we think we deserve from God, the less content we are in God. The less we exalt God as God, the less content we are. Because we slowly but surely begin to put ourselves in God's place. It's like... Satan tempted Eve with, you'll be like God, you'll be in the place of worship, thinking you deserve the praise of man. And so rather than rejoicing in our worship of God, we become angry because we are not worshiped. Self-exaltation drives discontentment, which drives all kinds of sin. And if that is us, Agor says, we should cover our mouths. As certain as when you press milk to produce curds. As certain as when you press the nose until it bleeds. As certain as you press anger in someone to produce strife. As you exalt yourself, you will destroy yourself. Because you will be acting in contradiction to the very wisdom of God. And he made the whole world. He made the whole world to exalt God. (laughs) And to live in a way that exalts self is to contradict the very fabric of creation (laughs) and to expect it to go well for you. Though I'm certain uh, there's a lot more that we could learn from Agor's wisdom here, these are the five truths we discerned this morning and on what I think is the thread. Number one was this, discontentment drives us to sin against others. Number two, discontentment is blinding keeps us from seeing ourselves rightly. Number three, discontentment cannot be satisfied. Number four, discontentment makes you miss God-given opportunities in your life. Number five, discontentment is a form of self-exaltation that self-destructs. Now, in closing, allow me to provide you with an alternative. Now, discontentment constantly tries to fix itself With the things it thinks it needs to be content, but it never works. So, this contentment's constantly trying to fix the thing going on inside. It never works because what's most needed is not a change of situation, but a change of heart. What's most needed is what only Jesus provides. Because here's the reality of the universe whereas every sinful person tries to change, their social, economic, relational, or political status for their own self-exaltation, for their own betterment, Jesus Christ did the opposite. Jesus Christ being in the place of most contentment, the place of most exaltation, the place of King of Kings and Lord of Lords over all the universe, Jesus doesn't work his way into a higher social status. He takes a step down for the good of you and me. I mean, this this is the story of the Bible, is it not? Philippians chapter 2, that he being Jesus was in the form of God. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. The gospel story is about a God who deserved everything, yet emptied himself and became one of us and lived the life we failed to live. And died the death we deserve to die. And rose on the third day to offer what we could never find. That is eternal life and eternal contentment in the God who made us. Jesus stands up at the feast in his ministry and in his life. And he looks at all these people feasting and striving and carrying on. And trying to to get what their souls long for. And Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John comments, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit hadn't been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Well, I've got good news, brothers and sisters. Jesus has been glorified. (laughs) He has ascended to the Father and now from the right hand of the Father pours out the gift of the Holy Spirit into you. So that even right now, God can bring soothing to your restless soul by the Holy Spirit. That, that contentment and satisfaction in God is available to you this morning only by the miracle grace of God. Not by your striving to achieve the thing that you think you want, but by you falling on your face before the God who provides. We considered five truths about discontentment. Let me just give you the opposite of each. Discontentment drives us to sin, but contentment in the Lord, on the other hand, drives us to worship. It it drives us to thanksgiving. Not only does contentment drive us to worship God in thanksgiving, it frees us to enjoy and encourage the success of others. We're happy in God. We're freed to be happy for others only by the miracle work of the Spirit. Number two is discontentment is blinding. Alternatively, contentment in the Spirit, when we believe in Jesus, it opens our eyes. When you don't have your eyes set high above everyone else, you're actually free to see yourself, your friends, the people around you as they really are. You're free to be thankful. Discontentment cannot be Satisfied, but contentment in Jesus actually leads us into a state of joy that only He can do. Discontentment makes us miss opportunities God's given us. Contentment in the Lord frees us to follow His lead, trusting that His lead is better than ours. Discontentment's a form of self exaltation that leads to self destruction, but contentment in Jesus Christ, we forgo that. Pointless mission of exalting ourselves and we settle for a much better one of exalting Christ. That's the kind of work that Agor in his prayer, Lord, don't make me poor, don't make me rich, I just don't want to profane your name. It's the kind of contentment he was praying for in verses 7 through 9. It's the kind of contentment Jesus offers you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ, may we be a church that gives ourselves to praying for and hoping for and striving for a kind of rest in Jesus that He alone can bring. Let's, let's pray for that together, church. Let's pray for that in our prayers. Let's pray for that in the song that we will sing. Let's pray for uh, our restless souls to find rest in Jesus. God, we love you, and we, we pray... Um, we all confess, just sort of an angsty discontentment that we all wrestle with. And Father, we pray that you help us to believe in Jesus and to trust that His way is better. There are so many people in the room right now that have heard this sermon and they've seen these texts of Scripture, and the sin within them wells up into anger. Because the discontentment in the soul is raging. And I get it, and I see it, and I know it, I feel it. And Father, we don't come masquerading this as easy in a broken world with sinful souls. But we come desperate for miracles of grace. Miracles of grace. Father, Agor has painted the picture for us, what we need. But only Jesus can provide it. Help us to turn to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.